Hello and welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of the Golfing Greenkeeper podcast. My name is Steve Smith and I am your host, as you would always expect, which is a great thing from my end, so I appreciate you coming in and listening. I've got something new for you. This is a new expanded version of the design brief. Without any further ado, this is episode number 67. Ladies and gentlemen, I welcome you to the new expanded version of the design brief on the Golfing Greenkeeper podcast. You're going to have fun with this one. I'm going to be chatting with members of the Society of Australian Golf Course Architects and uh, and expose the names and the, the businesses and who they are and where they've worked and all that sort of stuff. So you get to learn, that's the aim of the game, and pique your interest in the world of architecture, golf course architecture, certainly in Australia. We're going to talk about uh, all the different people and where they've worked around the world. And I'm going to start off with this one. The expanded version goes straight to a guy by the name of Ben Davey from Contour Golf. Ben, welcome to the Golfing Greenkeeper podcast. Thank you, Steve. It's a pleasure to be to be on and to be on the first architect, am I? Mate, you, you are on this expanded version. I have had Harley Cruz on here before, but this is a little bit different. This is this is going to be talking about your background, where you guys have worked, and we're going to get into some of the details of some of the places that you worked and, uh, and the design and pick your brains about a few bits and pieces, mate, and have a good discussion about some things. And, and uh, we're trying to educate listeners as well when they're out there on the golf course, the things they're going to see, places that you might have done work on, things that they can look into when they're out there playing golf and going okay well that that green has 47 bunkers around it why is that or why has that only got one and they're the things that we want to try and learn and educate people along the way mate so it's uh yeah mate you are the first on the new expanded version so you you it's uncharted waters well, I feel quite honoured, <laughs> mate. I'm excited to have uh, have you break the ice for for everyone in the society, uh, which is which is really good. And I'm, I always ask this: Have you been on a podcast before, mate? No, I haven't actually, Steve. I've been waiting for you to call me. <laughs> I love it. I love it, mate. That's very good to hear. Very no, good. No, to, Mate, you are an icebreaker. So let's uh, let's, and I'm going to do a, an icebreaker to start this one. So it's the new design brief, and I'm going to call it's it's fi- the fast five, five quick short answer questions relating to architecture and golf course design. Are you ready to go with these ones? No one knows them. No one's heard them before. So this is a world first. Okay, I'm ready, Steve. <laughs> All right. So the first question is your preferred grass type to see on a golf course. Um, I don't think you can go past Cooch. You know, the, the, the way Cooch is presented on, you know, like the Melbourne stand belt, nothing beats that. Very good to hear, mate. We, we might discuss some of these later on. It's quick, short answer, so I'll keep moving. Number two, and and some people may have, the listeners might have heard these questions a little bit before in, the, in my uh, Keeper of the Green segment. So some are going to cross over, but I'm curious to hear the differences with architects and designers and with superintendents and greenkeepers. So this is good. So number two, stripes or no stripes on fairways for presentation? I think I'm a no stripes person. I think it's... The nice, cleaner look, um, more natural look, uh, not not striping fairways. Okay, good to hear, good to hear. Now, number three, your favourite type of par four, a cool, short par four or a challenging long par four? Definitely for me, a cool, short par four. Nice. Yeah, 
Nice, I like it. I, th- I think I think that's going to be popular with architects. So I, I'm I'm I, I'm thinking I'm, maybe I'm getting ahead of myself, but I'm working on that one. Now, number four, favorite bunker style. Favorite bunker style. Kingston Heath, and this is all Australian. It's multiple choice. Kingston Heath, the beautiful earthy tones of Royal Adelaide, as I love to say, or the bright white of the Australian. Oh, I. Definitely go Kingston Heath, I would say, um, on a sand site, obviously. Yep. If it was a clay site, then uh, it wouldn't be Kingston Heath, obviously. It'd be something more like, uh, I really like the stuff that Tom Doe did at Concord, something much simpler. Ah, there's an interesting one. I I did see Concord soon after it had opened, and I was really intrigued by the uh, the style of bunkers. They're very different. I don't know how they are a number of years on. I haven't been back, but uh, yes, very interesting. I I like the answer, mate. Well done. Well done. Uh, Simple and elegant. Yeah, very well described. I love it. I love. See, this is already educating us. We're already learning. I love it, Ben. Thanks. Now, number five, the final one. One of your favourite golf courses by design in the world. Now, I know that's a big question, but off the top of your head, what's something by design that you think of and you just go, that for me is a great one? It doesn't need to be your number one, just a great one. Oh, I visited Dornick up North Scotland a Ooh. few years. That is a... That's almost the perfect golf course in my view. Wow. So, I'll say Royal Dynamic. Okay, very good. Well, there's one that we, we may not have heard of. I certainly haven't discussed because it is an All-Australian, but I like to hear. We like to learn. So, uh, mate, that's one we can look into at our leisure when we're uh, sitting in front of the computer if we're not lucky to be travelling around that part of the world. So, very good, mate. Thank you for taking part in the Fast Five, the first time, the first time, Ben. I think they're all very interesting questions, and, uh, and I certainly like to hear those ones, which is great. Now, mate, let's get stuck into... Who Ben Davey is. Let's get stuck into contour golf. Let's get stuck into the architecture discussions that we can have here. And I want you to let's start off with. I want you to tell us a bit about your career, Ben, as a, as a golf course architect, um, sort of up to date in terms of where you've worked in the past and, and who you've worked with throughout your career, getting to where you are today. Can you give us a bit of a background run? And uh, look, don't be shy. There's going to be a bit in that. I've got no doubt, and I think you've worked in plenty of places. So, mate, can you maybe start? off with how you got into where you got your first start as an architect yeah well i guess um you know i'm originally from melbourne i'm living in the act at the moment but i was brought up playing firstly a little golf course down on the mornington peninsula where my we used to holiday rig which is the flinders golf course oh okay flinders golf course is pretty much how i first was exposed to golf and from there it just kind of grew um and i from the age of 13 i started studying golf courses and drawing golf courses and just loving the subject of, of golf and, uh, you know, living in Melbourne and being able to visit places like Royal Melbourne and uh, where my aunt was lucky enough to be a member. So being exposed to that as, at a young age, um, I just really became interested in, in golf courses and golf course design. Wow. That's that's really cool, and it made if I could just jump in quickly, only quickly. Yeah. That Flinders, from memory, that had the touch of Alistair McKenzie there. Was it for a very very early period in during his visit to Oz? Well, I think he visited there. How much influence he actually had? Okay. I think prepared a plan, um, some of which was implemented, but I I don't think that he could claim that as one of his designs from what I've seen. Okay, fair enough. Fair enough. I, but- I, I played that course probably more than any course on the planet. So I know every, wow. every cranny of Flinders Golf Course. And um, 
you know, other courses I used to play as a kid, like good old Burnley, Royal Burnley, we used to call it, um, in the in a suburb of Richmond or okay, yeah. Uh, but uh, yeah, so always fascinated by golf, always fascinated by golf courses and golf landscapes as well. Um, but to answer your question, um, the way I got into golf course design was really, really fortunate in a way. It was luck. Um, I, I spent a couple of years overseas doing the kind of backpacker thing and travelled around Europe and okay. America and got back to Australia having done a, a science degree before I, I took two years off. And I was studying uh, urban planning at Melbourne University and I was also working part-time in a restaurant. Right. In uh, Camberwell, which is an inner suburb of Melbourne. And uh, the boss said to me one day, so Ben, what do you want to do with your life? And I said, oh, look, I don't really know, but I've always been fascinated by golf course design, but I've got no idea how I'd get into it. And he said to me, oh, we've got a regular customer that, I think he's a golf course architect. <laughs> I can't wait to hear the rest of this. I can't remember his name, but I'll, I'll try to find out what his name is. And a couple of days later, he said, oh, his name's Tony Cashmore. <laughs> he comes in quite regularly. Um, I think I've got his phone number because he made a booking a few weeks ago. I've got his phone number in the bookings book. So he called Tony Cashmore and he said, look, I've got this young bloke. Um, says he wants to design golf courses. Is there any chance he could come and have a chat to you? And that's how I met Tony Cashmore. Wow. So, so let me just get. Let me just. <clears throat> I'm digesting that one. Let me get this right. So you're working in a restaurant, having yeah, a conversation with your boss about golf course architecture, and neither of you have got any <laughs> any background in that. No, that's exactly right. <laughs> yeah, Tony Cashmore was a regular. He used to. Pop in there for his morning coffee. Wow. And uh, so I went and met Tony. And wow. The rest is pretty much history. But I, I started working. Um, Tony kind of threw me in the deep end. Um, at the time, it was 1996, I think. And Tony was in the process of building uh, the Dunes golf links down on. Oh, okay. Now that's a great golf course. Yeah. So he he built. I think they'd done about half of it because there was an original golf course there before the, before he did the dunes. Right. Called um, Limestone Ridge. Mm, okay. So a guy, uh, Duncan Andrews, um, purchased that golf course in the mid-90s and then Tony rebuilt the whole place basically. So he, we, he was in the process of doing the dunes. Um, wow. So that was really exciting. So I, I, you know, I remember... Um, I think when I started working for Tony, they were in the process of, of rebuilding the 18th green. Wow, we there you that go. Was a really, really exciting project to be involved in, and then, and then after that, um, we did a project down on the Bellarine Peninsula, 13th Beach. Yes, we first of all did the beach course, and then uh, worked with Nick Faldo on the creek course. Mate. That's it. So can I can I ask? So you you you've jumped in from nowhere from working in a Pretty restaurant, much. and you've gone to the dunes with with Tony Cashmore design to the dunes, and then to Thirteenth Beach, and then with Nick Faldo involved as well. Is that is that have I have I got the crux of that? Yeah, I kind of pinched myself <laughs> back then. It was 
fucking times. So, um, but we, we were working on a number of other smaller projects around Melbourne. One of the ones that I probably had the most involvement in was uh, there's a little public golf course in, called Ivanhoe Public Golf Course. Okay. Yeah, I've heard of that one. Which is on the Yarra River in Melbourne. Yep. So, it's just out the east side. It's the city, isn't it? Up the, the Yarra? Yeah, there's a whole, a whole group of courses through there. They call it uh, the Clay Belt. Is right. Referred to in Melbourne. Or, okay. As opposed to the Sand Belt. <laughs> Um, yeah, there's Q Golf Club, Greenacres, Latrobe, um, and Ivanhoe. Yeah, right. Okay. That was a public course. And that was a, a council job, basically, and we rebuilt all 18 greens. Right. So while Tony was off doing exciting things at 13th Beach in the dunes, I was looking after Ivanhoe, which wasn't quite as exciting, but it really threw me in the deep end, I guess, and had to learn about greens construction and what worked from a design point of view and what didn't work and how drainage worked and contours, et cetera. So, yeah, that was probably my first job that, you know, I, re- I had some real responsibility still, for, I guess. Still pretty bloody impressive, if I'm being honest. I mean, you, you, the early days into, like you said, your career, and then you've still got the it's all 18 greens. I mean, that's a that's a big deal. Yeah, I, I, well, when I say I designed all 18 greens, I did all the drawings for the 18 greens. Yeah. And Tony Cashmore, in typical fashion, would amend things on site during construction often, yep. um, as we do as golf course architects. Yep. But, uh, yeah, those 18 greens are still there today, so I'll wow. have to get there and have a look at it one day. Cool. I know, I know um, one of my followers, actually, we were just chatting about Ivanhoe the other day. So there you go. Okay. Very good. So, okay. So, what, what, what year? What era? What time are we talking about, mate? Roughly, when are we talking here? This is kind of the late nineties. Okay. My um, thirteenth beach was finished the late nineties. I then Tony kind of went a bit quiet then uh, after thirteenth beach opened, and I actually went off and worked for a, a landscape architect just to do something completely different out of the golf field for about two and a half years. Um, okay. Really good experience. Yep. And after about 2003, I think it was, um, I got a phone call. Actually, the landscape architect that I was working with was the landscape architect for the Heritage Golf Course uh, out in the Yarra Valley. Yep. And coincidentally, Tony Cashmore had just been appointed the golf course architect to design the second course there, uh, which is called the Henley Course. Right. the first course was done by Nicholas. That's a St. John course, is that right? Yeah, that's the one on the on the north side of the river. Yep. Um, so he'd just been appointed to do that, and and I was the landscape architect for the um, for the hotel that they ah. were built um, at Heritage. And I still remember this too because it was the open. It was I think kind of like the opening day for you know turning the first sod of dirt to build the golf course. And we went on a hot air balloon trip over the Yarra Valley. Wow. And happened to be in the basket of this hot air balloon with James Cashmore. Now, James Cashmore is Tony Cashmore's son. Okay. And James had become involved in the business and they were looking at opportunities in Asia, um, namely China. Yep. And, uh, and he said, why don't you come in and have a chat to me one day and we'll see if we can get you involved again. And so I 
went back two and a half years later and started working for Tony Cashmore again. Wow. Um, with a focus more on, on Asian work, we did the, the Henley course in the Yarra Valley. Um, but then it was really all about China. And that was, was that a, re- that w- we talked about Tony Cashmore designer looking to expand. Asia and China was probably driven by China at that time was really, really starting to move, wasn't it? I mean, that was, if, if anyone was looking to design golf courses, that was where you were going to go at some point. Yeah, around the kind of 2005 to 2010, um, China was just booming. It was, I think at one point there was like 150 golf courses under construction per annum. Wow. Um, wow. So everybody was over there working. Um, you know, all the big names, Nicholas and Baldo and and others, Greg Norman. Yep. And uh, James Cashmore didn't, to be honest, didn't know a lot about golf course design, but he knew a lot about running a business and he knew a lot about marketing. Yep. And he was able to get uh, Cashmore in there. Um, and we, you know, we did a lot of work. We were very successful. Uh, the Beijing Golf Show every year used to be the biggest golf show in the world, and you'd walk into the Beijing Golf Show, and there would be you know, Nicholas's booth, and then you know Falbo's booth, and next to that would be Tony Cashmore's booth. Well, you got to be in the mix, haven't you? Well, that's right. <laughs> James Cashmore knew that, and uh, he was ma- he managed to get Tony in there, and we did uh, a lot of work. We did a lot of master plans. Not all of them were built. Sure. The first first course I really was heavily involved in in China was in Beijing, a place called Jade Lake. And uh, it was a dead flat site, terrible site, really. Uh, Completely treeless, probably half a meter of elevation change over a kilometer or more. (laughs) Right. Definition of flat, Jade Lake. (laughs) Very average. And. so we manufacture the golf course out of that, you know, a lot of cut and f- some serious earthworks. I think we moved close to a million cubic metres of dirt. Wow, is that all? <laughs> is that, I'm going I'm I'm, to, I'm, maybe it's a bit early to jump in, but I'm going to jump in just the same, mate, because uh, you, I get the impression and I've, I've read a lot of stuff about the, the, the Asian market, the Chinese golf courses, and, and like you mentioned, lots of Australian architecture firms. I know I've done some work over there and, and uh, lots of Australian architects over the years. It, it, it I get the impression that there's a lot of, um, and maybe it's unfair to, to, to put it across everything, but very built, manufactured golf courses. Is that, was it, is it, was it at that time? When things were being built, they're essentially building cities and they're expanding and it's so much happening. Was were, were some of the golf course works? It wasn't about being on great land. It was just here's the land. This is where we're going to put a golf course, make it happen, and you you make a master plan around that. Is that is that how some of them or a lot of them were working? I think the problem with building golf courses in China was they had some strict rules about what land you could and couldn't use. Okay. Um, basically, if it was arable land, farming land, you couldn't touch it. Right. The only sites available were really bad sites, generally speaking. Um, so, you know, mountains or dead <laughs> flat. So, okay, fair, fair enough. That may, Okay, yep, yep. I, don't, I, I had one site up in the north of China once, which was inland, but it was quite unique. It was all sand. 
but that's the only really good site I've probably ever worked with in China, unfortunately. So it was uh, a rarity. Finding a good site in China is a rarity, yeah. Some of them are really challenging, um, mountainous usually. So Okay. Yeah, so there was a lot of kind of manufactured stuff built um, in the 2000s and, and the clients over there, we, we had to educate a lot of the clients. They Their perception of what a golf course should be um, sometimes wasn't ideal uh so you know getting them getting them away from white sand for example was nearly an impossibility <laughs> is that is that is that uh driven by uh, look mate i don't know I'm, I'm i suppose this is an open question to you is it driven by what we've seen on television to be a good golf course sometimes is it driven by their culture i don't know that the asian cultures and the way they view that sort of stuff is what do you think was behind the, that viewpoint Oh, I definitely think, you know, there's the Augusta factor. Um, right, okay. Bright green grass, white sand, um, and lots of water. So like a lot of um, general board, I'm, I'm going to discriminate here and say a lot of board members in, in some of the smaller clubs around Australia, I've worked with them, so I can say that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, there's a certain amount of truth to that, I think, although I think, um, you know, Australia is definitely a more educated golf market than China was back then. Yeah, that's fair. Hmm. Interesting. So, so over there with with Tony Cashmore Design, um, how long were you working over there for? Have you got any uh, interesting? Uh, you know, how many golf courses did you end up being part of over there, and how long were you there for? Well, with Cashmore, between about two thousand and five and two thousand and nine, when I left, we did uh, that course in in Beijing, which was eighteen holes. We did a, a rebuild of a course down in Guangzhou, which is uh, the far south near Hong Kong, um, a course called Foshan. I think Foshan's hosted a couple of uh, China PGA Tour events. Yeah, right, eh? And then we did another one in um, South Korea as well. Um, and uh, that one came about because the, the owner of that golf course actually went and played the Dunes. Um, right. He said there's son or daughter was uh, at university in Melbourne and they went and played the dunes and then went into the pro shop and said oh who designed this golf course it's Tony Cashmore <laughs> and they ended up building a golf course in um, a small city called Daegu which is in South Korea south of Seoul um, and that was almost the opposite of that Beijing site this was right probably even worse more difficult <laughs> I thought you were going to say it was better <laughs> No, I was literally on the side of a mountain. Wow. So, yeah, with probably over 100 metres of elevation change. Does that does that bring, as an architect, you talk about how difficult or, or in inverted commas, bad the site is. I think about um, being on the side of a mountain and, and people that I know that are golfers and look at pictures of those sorts of golf courses and go, oh, my, look at that just is incredible. If I go somewhere, I've got to play that one or I've got to go and have a look or they're golfers that travel around. Is is that, when you talk about it being a bad side, is it is the finished product so dramatic it's incredible but, but actually getting to finish and build the golf course is what makes it hard? Well, yeah, I think you can do great things with mountainous sites if you have enough land available. But the prop, the other problem with this site was it just wasn't big enough to, to okay. really with because 
we basically had to run all the holes along the contour along the side of the mountain and then kind of in order to get them flat enough we had to kind of terrace between holes okay okay so very manufactured yeah it was um we then planted out these kind of terrace slopes as much as possible but just to get the width we wanted on fairway you know fairway plus rough on each side we wanted kind of 50 to 60 meters minimum before the drop off if you like um was so look the end result was good uh there's some spectacular views there uh some really good green sites um so look the course ended up great but it was just a really challenging site to work with yeah yeah no doubt trying to build a golf i think about where we see golf courses on the northern beaches of sydney and lots of golf courses along the you know along the strip and um in those sorts of flattish typeish areas and then you see you're building one on the side of a mountain (laughs) very different very different so that's uh so south korea was in in part of your time over there in asia yeah, so that was around 2007, and then we did Foshan. Um, and then in 2009, I uh, became a little bit disillusioned, I guess, and, and thought I probably <laughs> knew too much and yeah, basically packed up my bags and, and left. Right. And uh, not only did I leave, I kind of took the Asia business manager with me. So I was <laughs> Okay. I wasn't overly popular at that time with with James Cashmore, especially uh, because the Asian business manager he's a, a Chinese Australian um, Australian citizen, but obviously fluent in Mandarin. He's from Shanghai originally. His name's Joseph Joseph Shi. Um, Joseph had worked with Thompson Parrot for a few years um, in China and helped them out during the nineties as an interpreter. Um, and then he was working with Cashmore as well. And I, I got to know Joseph very well. We spent a lot of time together. And so we, we left together and formed a new business. And Joseph had also been working with um, Bob Shearer, Bob, the uh, ex-professional golfer. Right. Um, so Bob Shearer had been working at Thompson Parrot and done some stuff in China with them. And, uh, and then he done a golf course on his own as well in Beijing, working with Joseph. Uh, so Joseph's strong recommendation to me was that I needed someone more senior to work with um, if I was going to form my own business. Okay. So he suggested uh, Bob Shearer. So I, I formed a, a new business. Um, at that time, it was called Davy Shearer Golf Design. So I was... I was the sole director of the company, so I kind of employed Bob and paid him a commission to work with me. And um, and we we ended up doing a lot of work in China as well. I was probably eighty or ninety percent ninety percent of my work was in China back then. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So we did a course. I was only about thirty six or thirty seven then, I think, and thrown into the deep end with a new project up in the far north of China in a province called Liaoning, where um, they'd actually started building a golf course and the owner was concerned about the design that I think a local Chinese company had designed it. So the first time I went there, it was a small city called Fushun, which is in Liaoning, which is 
probably a thousand kilometers north of Beijing. Jeez. Yep. Uh, so I got there in the middle of winter. It was about minus eighteen. <laughs> what Celsius? Celsius. Holy street! Where? How far north is this? This is up above, kind of North Korea. My lord. Yeah. <laughs> Mate, I, look, I'm pretending I know what I'm ta- uh, what I'm hearing from you. I've got no idea about the Asian region. But if you're talking about minus 18, was it elevated above sea level as well? What the hell? No, no, it's just uh, extreme cold up there. Um, yeah, so the first time I got to this site, it was under snow. We'd left Melbourne. It was <laughs> December, I think. Um, so left here in the summer, landed there. It's minus 18. We get to the site with, with Bob. Bob was with me. And uh, they'd started building this golf course, and they were basically moving a river. There was a river float through the site, and it was about 80 metres wide, <laughs> frozen solid, and they had these excavators there smashing smashing up the ice, and they were next door to the golf course. The same developer was building a a theme park, like a Disneyland-type theme park. And in order for his theme park and hotel to work, they needed this river, river moved. So, <laughs> so some of the golf holes there were built on eight metres of felt. Wow. Uh, yeah, so some of the holes are now where the river used to be. So, yeah, it was pretty exciting. It so... Was- so I, I'm, I'm, my brain is computer. Sorry to jump in again. My brain is trying to get my head around what you just said. Because when you were saying, I thought you were sort of metaphorically speaking with that. Oh, they're just moving a river. They actually moved the river. Well, they diverted the river. Yeah, yeah they, and and moved where from where it was going, <laughs> where it once was, to somewhere else, so they could fit what they needed to. Because we we don't really get that type of thing happening here, do we? No, we don't, and that's what was so exciting about it was the scale of the projects and the scale of the of what was they thought was achievable. Oh, that's in terms enormous. Keeping dirt, etc. Wow. Uh, yeah, so that was an interesting site. It was kind of a site in two halves. Half the site was really good. Okay. It was kind of undulating and pine forest and birch, um, and. Through that land, we didn't really need to move any dirt at all. And then the other half of the site was dead flat, kind of adjacent to this river and um, was huge earthworks. You had to make something out of it, something good. Yeah. So, and then, yeah, the hotel, the hotel that this developer built was just extraordinary. You have to see it to believe it. It looked like the, you know, the castle in Disneyland. Yeah. 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 It looked like that, but it was about 10 times bigger with all these turrets and wow. stuff on so, the top of it. So can I, can I ask a silly question? Is that, is that do, do you look at back at some of these? I know we haven't finished talking about China, but I'm thinking you look at that, do you, do you, are they still there? I don't know how the Chinese market works. You know, We hear about things going up and down in, in parts of the world when it comes to golf developments and things like that. Is China under the same forces? Do they come and then some, some of them disappear after 10 years or 20 years and do you look back and see them or how they're going? Well, I'm, I'm always intrigued by going to Google Earth and, and seeing what, what these projects look like. You and me and, both, mate. I love that. Yeah. And um, that particular project is still there. Uh, so that's still going. Wow. Uh, I went back there a few years ago, actually, and, and did another little course for that same developer. I did like a putting course as part of his theme park. Right. 
Um, so that one's still there, but that course, that never really opened to the public. That oh, was, okay. That was just a developer that um, I think his hotel guests can play it um, and some of his business friends. Wow. And that's a, so you don't hear about a lot of these courses over there. That's unreal. Very, very so, different. Yeah. And then, and then I'm sticking to the China theme. I, I did another course with Bob down at um, – a city called Putian, which is um, basically on the Taiwan Straits um, in uh, Fujian province. So that was a 27-hole development, and um, that was not a bad site. It was pretty mountainous, but it was it had some nice long valleys that we used, and, and I believe that course is still there too. Wow, okay. So, mate, if I can... Because I, I I do want to talk about a lot of other things with you, and I I suppose I'm I'm hearing there's a lot of experience gained in your time over there working in and around China and Asia. That uh, by the sounds of it, that that seems like you've you've done a lot of work, master planning, building, construction, minus eighteen, moving rivers. I mean, <laughs> that sounds like there's a lot to be uh, put under your belt through your time over there in China. Would that be fair? Absolutely. I learned a hell of a lot over there. I think just the scale of the projects and the amount of dirt that's moved on some of them um, taught me a lot. So, Interesting. Very interesting. So overall, how long were you in China working? And like you mentioned, are you still doing some over there from time to time? But you were more or less working there full time, I take it, a time coming back to Australia every now and then? Yeah, the the last job I it all kind of went pear-shaped in China around 2014. Right. Uh, there was a change of government. Xi Jinping came in. Uh, they they basically cracked down on, on illegal golf developments, and there was a lot of bad stuff happening, I think, with um, you know, most sites in China. You've got to relocate farmers, et cetera, or sometimes even town, whole towns for these projects to proceed. And wow. I think... Uh, a lot of developers were doing the wrong thing, cutting down trees illegally, etc. So around 2014, the, the new Chinese government did a basically an audit of every golf course in China. Wow. And they kind of ranked them. They, you know, Out of the 700-odd courses, they said, okay, those 400, they're okay, they can stay open. Um, these 150 have to, you know, renovate things or fix things that they did wrong um and then they actually shut down about another hundred horses or possibly more than a hundred really so just that the, these are the rules this is the line in the sand guys this is and this is how it's working from here on in yeah they they, they shut down over a hundred they also basically cancelled all new developments so we had a course under construction in hubei province and it just literally stopped overnight wow uh, yeah and so that was basically the end of it went from boom to bust literally overnight with the change of government in around 2014 wow. i did have a project there around 2018 on uh, hainan island which is far far south of china it's an island uh in the south china sea yep um and i we actually grassed I think 12 or 14 holes there, you know, finished, shaped grass growing in. And then that was, that was shut down too. So, Oh, wow. That would have been a good one because that was a, a good site. And um, 
I did some really good stuff there, I think, in terms of the shaping and uh, some really good green complexes. So that was really disappointing for that one to, to shut down. So that sure. was 2018, and basically since then there's been no work for anyone in, in China. Oh, wow. So there, there really was this, this massive period where, I, I, like I said before, I, I heard of the big name architecture firms in Australia and certainly a lot of Australian architects working over there in some capacity. And you mentioned the Normans and the Faldos and all that sort of stuff. So it was big. And then it, it became, well, I suppose politics changes a lot of things in the way that we can do business yeah. and, and that. So that changed. And then it literally, the hammer comes down and that's it, it's full stop. Pretty much, yeah. I'm I'm not aware of anything happening over there now. Wow. Okay. There's still people playing golf, and there's still courses that are open. Yeah, sure. But in terms of new developments, I'm not aware of anything in China, and not, nothing's happened there for several years. Wow. So, okay. And yeah. and mate, I'm going to ask you. You mentioned there earlier on that you do uh, you were part of a lot of master planning, and and some of those don't get off the ground. They don't even get started. How does an architect feel like yourself? I know how I can feel when uh, the golf course that I was looking after closes down and disappears and is no longer with us. It, it made me feel, you know, I spent 10 years of my blood, sweat and tears in, in uh, building up a golf course at Katoomba in the Blue Mountains only for it to disappear to become a, a grass paddock. What's it feel like? You mentioned Hainan Island. As an architect and you're excited about a project, it's going really well, it's it's going to be something special. The hammer comes down to be no more. What What's that feel like? Is there a sense of a, an attachment, emotional attachment, like I had with Katoomba? Is that what you have with these babies, up in inverted commas, of yours that you're building around the place? To do, do, do you feel a little bit empty every, you know, every now and then when one disappears? Well, I think with that Heinen job, because I've put a lot of time and effort into it, just working out the details of, you know, how bunkers are going to be finished, and I spent a lot of time personally in bunkers with a shovel and shaping them up and getting them perfect. Yeah, right. Um, and you have a vision for what things are going to look like once they've all grown in and, and then opened. And to not to be able to see that come to fruition is very disappointing. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, the, the reason I ask is, like I said, for me it was gut-wrenching. Um, mm. When you put so much effort in, and like you said, it's about seeing the vision. You're looking at the end and going, this is where it's going to be. I can I can see it. I can feel it. We're getting there. We're on that road. It's coming. And then out of nowhere, the axe falls and, and you just go, well, what the hell? And, and it just yeah. leaves you feeling really, I felt really empty. And I was curious from an architect's point of view, and I'm, I might be presuming, I assume it's not your only one that that's happened to um, because of the business that you're in, um, do, do you get attached to those golf courses sometimes yeah you absolutely do yeah i mean i i'd love to be able to go back to china and go and visit these places again yeah right as i mentioned in Puti, and i haven't been there they, they hosted a china pga tournament in 2016 i think it was um and i went over for that just to see how it played yep um winning score was i think it was minus three yeah wow so it's held up well yeah, well, it was. It's a tough golf course. It's it's mountains and it's pretty long. Yeah, right. There you go. Uh, the client part of the client's brief was he wanted a two hundred and fifty yard par three, a five hundred <laughs> yard par four, and a six hundred yard par five. That, <laughs> that, that, that's kind of mental. Is that? 
and I go back to the the culture and the the, the their view on golf, and it's a China flavor. I say this about golf when, when you travel around the world and even within Australia because we're so vast and we've got so many different environments. It, it's that's their version of golf, and it doesn't mean I I like to say that it doesn't mean it's right or wrong. It's just different, and if you want to go and experience it, you can go over there and do so. And the same with the, the, when they travel to Australia, they come here to play our courses for our flavour of golf. Um, is that that that's their view that they like these long holes, really difficult stuff? Is that what they like some of the time? I think so. And there's a lot of competitiveness, I think, between golf developers over there as well. It's like, oh, my par five is longer than yours. <laughs> Are you sure my, that's the only sure. thing they're measuring? <laughs> well, so yeah, a, and the, just the golfing culture there too is different they don't kind of the club environment's very different to in australia where we have kind of saturday stableford competitions or you go and play par or don't start me on saturday stableford's that gets me angry (laughs) over there it's all about there's a lot of gambling involved oh okay they, they like playing with their friends and and playing for houses so. yeah well and they probably when we when i sit there and have a joke with my friends or go and play with my brother and we'll just throw a fiver around whatever they over there are playing for sheep stations yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, right. All right. well let let's let's turn the page on your china because that sounds like it was a very very big deal in your career and you learned a lot with um bob shearer as well working there and part of um that second stanza if you like of, of your architecture time over there in china you you've got a lot under your belt working with different people in different places and, and all sorts of things so how can I can is now the right time to ask you how and when does does contour golf come about? Yeah, well that that happened in I think it was twenty sixteen. Okay, um, Bob and I, you know, we I really enjoyed working with Bob. He's, he's he he passed away unfortunately this year, but we had some wonderful times together over in China, and you know Bob was an important part of of the business, but. When China kind of came to an end, I kind of felt that um, I needed to just, uh, you know, obviously focus more on Australia. And Bob Bob and I decided to part ways in 2016. So I I kind of rebranded the business, I guess, and I ummed and ahed about whether to um, use my own name, as as most golf course architects do. Yep. Out of respect to Bob as well, to go from Davy Shearer to Davy, I just felt I wanted to really start again with a okay. kind of more of a generic name. So I came up with um, Contour Golf Design Group, and so it was really just a case of, of renaming the company. And I did that in in 2016, and since then I've just been working on my own and just focusing far more on Australia. Okay, so. Let I'll, and I'll probably jump into. Uh, you can tell us and fill in a little bit of the time. So I know, and you started off with that. You've uh, not long ago relocated to the ACT. So you're, you're based in Canberra with a family, and uh, and I can and I look at the, some of the the work you've done in there that you've recently been engaged with. I should say to start off with at Yerwani and Murrumbidgee. Now they're local in, in around Canberra, but you mentioned 2016 was the change to Contour Golf. You've come back to Australia. Focus. Uh, I think you're in Melbourne prior to that. Were you back home down in Melbourne after you come back from China? Yeah, we were down. We were living down on the Mornington Peninsula, okay, um, Mount Martha, which is about an hour from the centre of Melbourne. Right. 
and then and then you you did some uh, being based out of Melbourne. You I assume get back into work and 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 those types of things. Where did you do a bit of work from before you before you you uh, relocated to Canberra? Um, well, probably my biggest job in Melbourne at that time was uh, Mornington Golf Club, which was Mornington's only kind of a ten minute drive up the road from where I was living in Mount Martha. Right. Uh, the way I became involved at Mornington was um, through Darius Oliver. Okay. Uh, so Darius, you know Darius, uh, he's got the Planet Golf website and was involved with Cape Wickham, et cetera. Yep. yep. He became involved there. They wanted to build a new par three and have a 19th hole. All right. Uh, so Darius contacted me and um, so we ended up around 2016 doing a, a full kind of course master plan for the redevelopment of the course um and then uh we we built this new par three which is referred to as the 19th hole um on this spectacular site right on port phillip bay um it's interesting because mornington golf club of all the courses in in melbourne it's the only one that actually has direct uh sea frontage onto port phillip bay oh really it's that close i've not been there yeah, it's right on uh, some cliffs in Mornington. Um, Mornington Golf Course is kind of built on top of a hill, I guess. Uh, so, you know, there's some really good holes there, but there were some really flawed holes there too. It's, some of it's quite steep. Um, there's about three holes in particular. Um, well, the fourth and the sixth are the, are the worst, which are really um, built on the side of a hill. And the fourth is probably even worse than the sixth. We've... Uh, I'll, I'll tell you in a moment about what we've done with the sixth hole, but the fourth hole, um, it's so steep that you really can't hold the fairway. Okay, so side hill lie we're talking? Side hill, yeah. So it, it tilts from high right to low left, and um, you know, especially in summer, you just can't hold the fairway. So the golf club, in their wisdom, went and built some of those little dinky mounds down the, the low side of the fairway to try and stop balls. So, so we the master plan, plan looked at addressing those issues um you know fixing those three or four holes in particular yep um and but building that first that 19th hole on the cliff that was the first project and it's spectacular green site it's um you're basically right on the edge of the cliff looking across the bay with kind of you know 180 degree views wow that's impressive for down the Mornington because down the Mornington Peninsula, I say southeast of Melbourne, because it it's not known for being elevated, like you said earlier. It's it's so if you're up and you've got a view over Portfield Bay, and I've seen a couple of photos. You mentioned the work you've done on the sixth, and the, I know you've done some uh, around the seventh tee, and we'll talk about that. But some of the photos I've seen from that, it just looks sensational. Yeah, well, Mornington's always been kind of a poor cousin to some of the other courses down on the peninsula. I, you know, the further down you go, the kind of the sandier the soil gets. And Mornington's kind of where the clay ends and then a few kilometres further on it becomes sand. Okay. Mornington's kind of built on clay, um, whereas, you know, down at Sorrento, Portsea, Rosebud, um, obviously the National and Dunes, that's all sand dunes. Yep, yep, yep. Yeah, so, you know, Mornington on clay, so they have, you know, drainage issues and the way you build the greens is obviously completely different to down on the sand. So it's always been a bit of a, a poor cousin, but it's it's a spectacular golf course and underrated. 
Indeed, and then we talk about spectacular. So I'm going to jump in and ask you to, to sort of, and and we'll we'll come back to Canberra a little bit in a minute. But I'm going to ask you about the the sixth hole, and what yep. some of the detail of the work was. What was the goal of of that work on the sixth? And you mentioned the side hill lies and that sort of stuff. So I'm just curious to to hear about the uh, the goal behind that work. What were you trying to achieve and get out of um, the the adjustments to the sixth hole? And then in turn, I think the seventh tee was on the back of that too. Yeah. Well, the sixth, it's kind of a mid-length par four. I think it was around 350. It's slightly longer now. Um, but yeah, as I mentioned before, it suffered from this tilted fairway that was high on the right, low on the left. Um, golfers couldn't hold the fairway, especially shorter hitters. It was just impossibly difficult for shorter hitters. Uh, they'd hit their tee shot and it was just everything runs left. And then the green sight was really good, but the green itself was... Um, pretty awful really it was just kind of pushed up and elevated and uh, there were kind of trees behind the green that blocked what was potentially a spectacular view so what we did we well to to fix the fairway we had to move lots of dirt basically we we cut on the right high right we filled on the low left and so the fairway is kind of now split into two uh, with a high right side uh, with a bit of a a drop off down to a lower left side. Okay. Um, all short grass, so it's all mown as short grass. Yep. You can basically make the decision now do you play down the kind of wider low left side or do you play up the higher right side, which is slightly more difficult shot? There's, we put a bunker at about 250 on the right. So if you play up the right, you've got kind of a more open approach into the green with better visibility. And then the green, we, we pushed the green back about another 20 metres past where it is where it was, um, took the trees out behind the green, and we've now got this really spectacular kind of skyline green that approach shot in is slightly uphill so it looks fantastic i mean you it, and it messes i i i haven't been there i haven't seen it but it, it without having a background it, that's up close you as a player and I've, I've played other holes that are similar to that where you you lose all depth of field judgment I find when there's yeah. nothing behind the green, so you you can read the meterage, you know, from your laser sights or from the sprinkler heads or pace it out, whatever you do. But to trust that meterage when you've got nothing behind but open sky is really difficult. There is one tree though, there isn't there? I think you've kept. There is one tree. It's actually back um, adjacent to the seventh tee, but that that tree is kind of iconic at um, at Mornington. It's a variety of pine tree. Um, and it's actually the logo for the golf club as well. So ah, we, okay. We weren't about to cut that one down. <laughs> but, uh, I guess the strategy of the hole is if, if you play up the higher right side, you've got a more um, better visibility of the green. It's still skyline, but you, basically behind the green, you're seeing just uh, kind of water of the bay and then sky. That's magic. And if you play down the kind of lower left side, it's more blind, more uphill. Uh, but obviously down the left, you've got more width to aim at from the tee. And no so, doubt you've probably solved that issue of, of the balls running all the way down the left. So now you've got a bit of a, a more of a, a playable stance as well. The balls aren't all going to pull in one area far down the bottom. It's a little bit more acceptable for, for players, I suppose, of all types. Oh, absolutely, yeah. I mean, the fairway, if, depending on whether you go low left or high right, it, 
you know, you'll have no trouble holding the fairway now. Yep. Um, yeah, so the issue with balls running off into the rough is, is, is gone. We've fixed that. Um, we've got a much better green site now. It's a much bigger green. Sits on the ground much more naturally than the old green. Um, we went for a bunkerless green too. We just wanted to keep it really simple. Okay, that's interesting. Yeah, so there's there's uh, there's a bunker short of the green, about forty meters short of the green, but the green itself is bunkerless. Right. Uh, and once you get up there, you know it looks looks like a really difficult shot from, especially from low left. Yeah. Because you don't know, as you said, you don't know. You know, you've got to trust the the distance that you. you know. So, but when you get up there, there's actually a lot of space. There's yeah. a lot of space behind the green. There's probably the green kind of falls away at the back, but there's probably 10 metres of, of space behind the green. So yeah, it doesn't drop off as soon as you get from the shortcut grass of the green. It doesn't disappear. No. Um, but no. that's part of that's part of what you do, right, is that you, you play on on what people can't see sometimes and it feels scarier than it really is. Well, that's right. Yeah, that, that's part of golf course architecture is trying to make things look difficult, but in reality that you know, plays easy. And and that, that I look, I find sometimes in conversations that I have with people is that um, they they tend to sometimes take that the wrong way. It's like you're out there to do something bad for them as they're playing the golf hole. When that that adds to the challenge and the joy, because at the end of the day, that's golf, isn't it? The challenge. Well, that's right, and it's supposed to be a fun game, not a punishing game. No, and and like I said, it it, it plays with your mind. It's not it it doesn't in this particular instance on the the back of the six, it doesn't drop off to nothing where you lose your ball. Uh, it, it just feels like that's what's behind it. And then when you get there, well, there's that bit of give so you can play back to the green. But you you, you learn next time when you play it to trust your distance a little bit better. And that's a skill you learn as you get around and learn more of the golf course. Well, that's right. And, it, and the, green, the green kind of does fall away at the back, which is kind of unusual. I mean, most greens kind of tilt towards the line of play. Probably the best known is, you know, like the third west at Royal Melbourne. It's not dissimilar to green like that um where you've got to land your ball short and kind of run it up because everything falls away but you know, if you lose it over the back then it's you're not going to lose your ball or anything it's just a tricky little chip coming back yeah nice and and the seventh it looks like a pretty awesome par three the seventh is a spectacular yeah longish downhill par three we really just rebuilt the tees there there's there's two tees there was a, a lower tee and a an upper tee and the upper tee just wasn't really big enough. But it's a better shot from the upper tee. Yeah, okay. So just as part of doing the sixth green, uh, you know, just kind of from the rear of six, it just kind of flows naturally onto these new rebuilt tees on seven. Okay, nice. And and that project you mentioned, is did you work with Darius? Very much so, yeah. Okay, fact, so it was a collaborative yeah. experience. Yeah, yeah. In fact, uh, you know, a lot of the construction was done during the the lockdown when I was ironically in the ACT and couldn't travel back to Melbourne. So <laughs> I've, I've got to give a lot of the credit during construction to Darius um, because you know, we obviously communicated a lot over the telephone and with photographs and video, etc. But for for some of the construction, I couldn't actually travel back to Victoria. Yeah, well, having lived through the the lockdown in Melbourne when we lived on the peninsula and not being able to travel to the ACT, it was to you know to look after my Yoani project. It was kind of ironic that the tables turned and I couldn't get back to Melbourne. Yeah, wow. Mm. 
So, okay, that, that job there for the sixth hole is completed. It's open for play. And like I said, it looks spectacular. So let's jump to, to the ACT and because Ioani's a big name in Canberra. Yeah, well, Ioani, um, I think I was appointed appointed around 2018, and that was a, a really satisfying project to win. Um, they put out an expression of interest and invited, I think, about six Australian architectural firms to right. prepare a, a concept plan for um, basically what they were doing was Ioani's in a, um, kind of in the centre of Canberra in the northern suburbs and um, they're on Northbourne Avenue, which is one of the major thoroughfares, the kind of the axes that runs down through uh, the centre of Canberra, through Civic, and then continues on to Parliament House. Yeah, you literally drive straight past the front gate on the way into town. Well, if you're coming from the Melbourne direction or from Yass, yeah, you come down the Barton Highway and then it's on the corner of the Barton Highway in Northbourne. And Northbourne Avenue has kind of been highlighted as by the government as a, um, an area they want to develop as kind of more high-density housing. Ah, okay. So that's why they've run the train up the guts of that road too, isn't it? Yeah, the tram line. Yeah, so the tram stop is basically right outside of the current clubhouse. So, <laughs> Smart so the, land, the land that their clubhouse sits on um, – which includes the clubhouse, two bowling greens, car parks, a motel and their maintenance sheds, um, they're disposing of all that land to a developer. developer. And uh, it's very valuable land because the developer can build up to kind of six, eight storeys with apartments. Yeah, wow, okay. So they're disposing of that and, and then... Um, obviously, they're moving their clubhouse to some new land on the other side of the golf course. So they they've purchased some some vacant land um, just near their current seventeenth green. Uh, it's about I think about two hectares of land, and they are building a new clubhouse on that on that land. Wow. Um, so the challenge really was to how do we reconfigure the golf course to work with that new clubhouse location. So they put out an EOI and asked half a dozen golf course architects just to come up with a, a basic concept of how that might work. Um, so I, and I prepared a concept. I visited the site. I met with them and and then was appointed in 2018 to, um, to be their golf course architect. So that was very satisfying, I think, to, to be chosen on the basis of not just my background and experience, but on the basis that I came up with the solution they liked the most. Yeah, oh, mate, I've got no doubt at all. I mean, like I said, it's, I know Ioani's got a very, very good name down there in Canberra, and I've not been there, actually. I've been to a couple of the other places, but Ioani's one of those ones that you hear about every time, and uh, the name's banded around as one of the stops you must try and get on if you can and are able. Um, so there's there's obviously a lot of change coming. Has any of that change been able to, to commence yet um, in any of its forms, or is there still a bit of processing and uh, and, and things to work through from the club's perspective? Uh, well, we've actually just finished and are about to submit the DA for the golf course. So right, okay. They've split the DA for the golf course works and the clubhouse works into two different packages. So we're submitting the DA. Um, if all goes to plan, that might take about six months. Uh, so the, the, 
the plan is to start construction uh, next year. So it'll be starting probably spring, September, October next year. And basically the project, the project's grown bigger from when it commenced to originally it was kind of how do we reconfigure the golf course and do the bare minimum amount of work to the golf course and changes to the golf course to work with the new clubhouse location. But it's kind of evolved from there and become much bigger. So it's now basically a complete rebuild of the entire course. Bloody hell, that's that's exciting. Yeah, so there's there's about eight greens that, will be relocated as part of reconfiguring the course to work with the new clubhouse location. Um, there's some pretty major reconstruction of lakes and existing lakes and new lakes as well. And then there's probably another 10 greens that don't actually move from where they currently are, but we're going to rebuild them in any case. So we get them all up to the same high standard. Um, so yeah, it's, it's become a, a big project. So it'll be done in two stages. Yep. Uh, so the, the first stage will be next year, uh, which will basically be all the work we need to do to to have the golf course work with the new clubhouse location. So the, the new clubhouse will be under construction essentially at the same time. And then once the first stage of all the golf course works are completed, they'll be able to basically pack up and move into the new clubhouse. And then stage two will be all the, the balance of all the, the other holes. Wow. So there's, that, that's going to happen over a little while, mate. You're going to be pretty busy there for a while. Yeah, it, it'll be good. Yeah, um, it, it's going to have its challenges. Yeah, we've got to keep nine holes open. Um, so they'll be out playing a nine-hole course from the current clubhouse while we build all the new work. And then um, they'll move over in year two to play all the new holes and um, while we rebuild the rest of it. So from, from the members' point of view, um, you know, they're only going to have a nine-hole golf course for two years, which will have its challenges from the club's point of view, I expect. Yeah, sure, sure. Yeah. So you've got a place like Ioani, and, and that's, like I said before, it's a very, very good name in, in Canberra, held in very high regard. So, and, and the other one that you've got down that way is Murrumbidgee Golf Club, which is quite a different type of club and golf course. Yeah, well, Murrumbidgee is on the other side of Canberra, down south, um, in a suburb called Canberra. Um, and it was part of a, it was built in the, the early 90s. And um, a guy called Bob Green, um, golf course architect, he passed away a few years ago, but he was one of the founding members of our Society of Australian Golf Course Architects. Okay. So he, he planned this course back in, I think it was 1990. And it's a really impressive golf course, actually. It's a, for a housing development, they, he did a very good job. It was well done because the front nine basically plays around um, a housing development, but he designed it in a way that there's lots of space. I mean, the golf course is on 98 hectares. Whoa. <laughs> so Yoani is probably on less than 50. Yeah. So I, I remember talking to um, Simon, Superintendent Simon Sneddon at Gold Creek, and I think Gold Creek's a similar size. Like, just there's only are we talking only eighteen holes at Murrumbidgee for some that for an area that big? Yeah, it's eighteen holes. There's probably between most of the holes, there'd be well on the back nine at least kind of fifty meters between, you know, from fairway to fairway between wow. holes. <laughs> so they don't have any safety issues internally or any safety issues to boundaries. Uh, there's lots of space. The front nine 
despite the fact that it does a big kind of anti-clockwise loop around housing development, it's probably more impressive, um, well, certainly especially than, than the back nine. Um, some of the views there are really spectacular. Wow. Uh, there's a mountain range called the Brindabella Mountains, and the first five holes kind of play towards the Brindabellas. And, yeah, so it's a really pretty golf course. And I was appointed there, or just going back to Bob Green's um, plan. So he de- he designed the golf course and did, you know, the, the course routing, etc. And it looks to me as though, obviously, Bob knew what he was doing when he designed this course. But the implementation then on the ground, it just looks as though maybe they took his layout plan and um, he may not have had much involvement during the actual construction because the layout works really well but the implementation on the ground and the the greens they built um, just aren't as impressive as as they could be short of a length you might say not quite up to to what you might expect it looks as though they got a really good design by bob and then went and built something as cheaply as they could yeah right how many times have we do you hear that story? <laughs> I don't mean yeah. to laugh, but that is not uncommon. So it's got the bones of being a really good golf course, um, but it, it's really you know the green complexes. Uh, when the course originally opened, I, I've just written a report for the club and did a bit of research into the background of the course. And when when the course originally opened, they didn't actually build any bunkers. Okay. So the bunkers have been were kind of just added in a very ad hoc way by you know, greens committees or superintendents. Nobody quite knows, right? Okay. Um, but it was pretty clear that not a lot of thought or planning went into where the bunkers were placed. Um, so they appointed me basically to look at to do like a bunker master plan. I called it. Okay. They started. They started a couple of years ago rebuilding. Um, a couple of their bunkers. They've got you know, the, the normal issues that we have in Canberra and a lot of them are silted up and every time it rains, they're filled with water and then it takes two days for the water to drain away. So they started rebuilding. They built, rebuilt two of their bunkers next to their ninth green and they used the, you know, the modern uh, drainage techniques using capillary concrete and then the, they did the... Um, echo bunker uh, face as well they get a lot of washouts on the face of bunkers so they've rebuilt two bunkers and then i think they must have sat back and thought well are we going to continue rebuilding all these bunkers some of them feel as though they're not in the right spot and maybe we should get someone in to have a look at it so they got me in and i basically did a, a bunker master plan for them and so you know over the next few years we'll be rebuilding um some bunkers in the same location, some of the greenside bunkers, the same or similar location. A lot of the fairway bunkers that were built will just be filled in. Okay, that's uh, interesting. Yeah, there's other spots. So the, the, the total number of bunkers, once it's all finished, will probably be similar to what there is now, but we're putting some of them in new and better locations, making adding a bit more strategy to the golf course. And it, it's interesting you talked about the evolution there of the golf course from being designed as such, but then sort of feeling like it was just built by somebody and bunkers going in or haphazardly from and without being rude to Murrumbidgee and in the way that it was done in the past. But mm-hmm. but I've 
I've heard I've I've worked on golf courses where that's happened, so I can yeah. speak a little bit from experience. And and like you said, when it gets to the point where the clubs decide they want to start working on and spending money and and bringing those particular pieces of the golf course. Um, up to speed, renovating them, getting them, you know, reinvigorated, and then they they go, well, hang on, if we're going to spend, you know, seven, ten grand rebuilding this bunker, well, hang, do we even know if it's worth spending that money on? Should it even be here? So, it, yeah. it it's not an uncommon thing for golf clubs to question some of those things that have just evolved in inverted commas by, you know, maybe not the most skilled people in the past. Um, do do you find that? That golf clubs probably need to, you know, people listening to this are, are board members, they're committee members, they, they're regulars at golf clubs. Should they, you know, sometimes think about asking that question within their own club? Is, you know, do we, uh, do we know that, that these things are in the right place, and and how did they even get here? Maybe that, maybe they're not. Maybe they could be done better. Yeah, well, that's right. I mean, we see this with every golf club, and you know, designing golf courses has its challenges. I mean. Every golfer is kind of a, an expert in golf course design, I guess. So we're regularly dealing with greens committees where, you know, there's a guy that plays off two on the greens committee and he thinks all the bunkers should be 260 metres from the tee. <laughs> and the lady that plays off 27 will never be in it or never be able to reach it. So it's, it's always challenging, you know, balancing where to place bunkers and stuff, you know, to, to cater for the... You know, the plus two marker that bombs at 270 and the elderly gentleman that only hits at 150. So yeah, it's challenging. And dealing dealing with Greens committees can be challenging. But I, my advice would be that, um, you know, guys like me and other members of our Society of Golf Course Architects have many years' experience doing this. And so consulting one of us is a wise thing to do. No, oh, mate. Look, I, I don't. I don't disagree with you all. I think absolutely, it's what they, uh, what the clubs need to do. And I, I put it to uh, you know, a, akin to what I used to do as a superintendent. Everyone's got a lawn at home. Everyone cuts their own grass at home. And uh, and every now and then we get someone that walks in and says, "Steve, you, you're not doing it right. This is you know that green that that's not right. It should be done better. What are you doing out there on the fairways, mate? This is how you, you know that that's what that's what happens because we're all experts uh, yeah. because we've all got it at home. And 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 sometimes that's not that's not the best way forward and it's not quite correct either and i will be a little bit blunt um in saying that because uh, like you said if you want to if you want to understand and talk to people with experience and experts in the field you go out there and, and seek those people and and you guys being the members of the society of australian golf course architects are those people when it comes to architecture and uh and i, I know that in my opinion uh, if a golf club is looking to question some of those parts of their golf course, um, there's no point asking, you know, the the champion of last year's, uh, you know, the, the, of the golf club, the A grade winner, and saying, "Hey, listen, Darren, Darren, what's you know, we're, we're looking and talking about the first last week, <laughs> you know, um, you got to go and talk to the right people to get the best out of. It. If you're going to spend money, at the end of the day, and this is me talking, clubs." Clubs need to spend the money in the right way. That's they don't have. It's not falling out of their back pockets. You know, they need to get the most out of it. And and getting the right people involved at the beginning, in my opinion, is um, is what they should be doing. Exactly right, mate. Uh, I, I wanna. I, I know that you um, you've recently done some travelling in Tassie. 
Can you tell us a little bit about what uh, what you're up to down there? Was it just to go and, and play around at Barn Bugle or was there a bit of work involved somewhere around there? A bit of work involved down there, yeah. So uh, I'm working mainly down there at Tasmania Golf Club. So um, that project came about, um, I was actually down there on holiday. So you so, were down there playing <laughs> years ago. And my wife was reading the newspaper and she read a story about how they were going to duplicate the Tasman Highway, put in this huge roundabout um, and plough through Tasmania Golf Club's course and how it was going to ruin their 16th hole and the demise of the club. Wow. So I happened to be in Tasmania at the time, so I thought, and Tasmania Golf Club's right next to the airport and um, I think we were about to fly back to Melbourne. So I contacted them and I said, do you want me to come past and just have a look? I've just read this article in the paper. So they said, yeah, sure, come past and have a talk to us. So I had a look at the situation and basically the the plans that were in the paper showed Mm. this. uh, the Tasman Highway is the main highway from Hobart to the east coast of Tasmania. So anyone travelling towards the east coast or there's a suburb there called Sorel as well, has to use the Tasman Highway. And the Tasman Highway, most afternoons, just turns into a car park, um, traffic jam all the way back past the airport. And so the government had to duplicate it, make take it from two lanes to four lanes, and in doing so also kind of straighten it in a few spots. So that's, you know, Tasmania Golf Club shares a border with a boundary with the Tasman Highway their main access to the clubhouse is off the highway. So it was going to have a a big impact on the golf course and they were going to compulsory acquire some of their land, Um, mainly the current 16th hole, which is a a long par five that plays kind of downhill from a high tee. Um, And then their driving range, which plays from the clubhouse towards the highway. And then their first green and second tees as well were all, potentially impacted wow yeah so and they were moving the the boundary or the highway so far into the 16th hole that well initially i i was kind of appointed by um the government by the government's engineers pitt and sherry to look into um whether we could put up uh, high screen fences so i basically i prepared a report and, and said yeah you'd have to they'd have to be x meters high and um you know 500 meters long and i worked worked out the costings etc and so that was always one option but the problem was that they were moving the boundary so far that the the fence or the screen would literally have been on the edge of the 16th fairway so it would have just wrecked the wrecked the hole completely um so then I started looking at other options and between the 16th hole and their 17th hole is their main water storage lake. Right. It's kind of one of those turkey turkey nest dams. And so I thought, well, the only way to move the 16th hole is to put it where the dam is. So the, the initial plan was basically to flip the two, fill in the existing dam, uh, build a new dam where the 16th fairway currently is and then put the 16th fairway through where the, the dam is. Um, so that was the original plan. And then the government engineers went away and kind of worked on more detail 
um, for the highway design came back and they'd moved the boundary another 10 metres. <laughs> Nothing so like, like having you start from scratch again. <laughs> yeah, so now it's like, well, we haven't even got enough space to move the dam. We could still fill in the existing dam and move the 16th hole across to where it is, but there was no space for the new dam, um, which is their main you know, 20 megalitre water storage. So then we had to start looking at a new location, and, and so the, the new dam's now going on the other side of the 17th hole into some vacant land that they're, they're uh, not currently using. So that's how the, the project started. So I've, I've been working on that for a couple of years. It's been held up, not because of anything to do with the golf course, but they've got to also acquire some land from the federal government where the airport is and some others. there's some orchids on the other side of the highway too that are impacted. So we're slowly getting there, but um, probably the most pleasing thing about that job was you know, it was kind of tricky in the beginning, I guess, because my client was not the golf club. My client was Pitt and Sherry, and it's the engineers for the government. Ah. So, you know, but I always wanted to look after the golf club's interests. So I had this interesting kind of balance to find between, you know, looking after the interests of uh, the Tasmanian taxpayer that in the end of, at the end of the day was going to be paying for all this, but also looking after the, the interests of the golf club. And obviously, as a golf course architect, I wanted to get the very best outcome for the golf club. So it was kind of pleasing that, um, you know, the way it unfolded, that I always kind of had the support of the golf club. And, and now I'm, you know, also very pleased that they've appointed me directly to prepare a master plan for the, the balance of the golf course. And they're looking at, you know, upgrading the entire course. Wow, that's exciting because it's in a pretty good location. I mean, apart from the, 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 the duplication of the, the highway at, right adjacent to it, it's on, uh, It's like you mentioned, not far from Hobart Airport, so that puts it in the vicinity of Royal Hobart and, and the new-to-be-built or it's currently being constructed Seven Mile Beach. A nice little group of golf courses there that um, that we'll be able to just fly into and play um, all together. But Tasmania's in a nice little spot with water on one side as well. Is that right? Yeah, it's, it's basically surrounded in water. It's on a peninsula looking out over, um, it's called pit water. So there's there's water views from nearly every hole. Wow, nice. I've not yeah. been there. The char- Well, the character of Tasmania Golf Club's really changed over the, the last decade or so. It used to be quite a heavily treed course. Um, and then it went through a couple of droughts and it suffered from a lot of dieback in the trees. So a huge number of trees were removed Okay. Really, everyone I talk to just says it's so much better now than it, than it used to be because it's really opened up these vistas and, and views across the golf course and across water. So That's what I was about to ask you, mate. I was about to say uh, quite often, more often than not, is when trees go missing, it's better. So the question was going to be, is it better? It is, it is definitely better. There's still quite a lot of trees on the course, but the trees tend to be now in areas that are kind of out of play, whereas a lot of the fairways used to have trees between them. Yeah, okay, yep. So what, as part of the master plan, I'm encouraging to kind of, if you're going to plant trees, plant them in these kind of out of play areas. There's, I mean, one example, between the first, second and sixth holes, there's kind of a triangle within inside those holes, which is kind of native bushland. So I'm encouraging them to kind of en- enhance those areas and but not plant trees between between fairways so 
if you end up in the treed areas, it's kind of lost ball. But uh, between golf holes, it's a much more kind of open, sparse landscape. Yeah, yeah, I'm in the the process of preparing the course master plan, um, which is going to be, you know, we're not rebuilding greens or anything. We're mainly looking at bunkers, um, the location of bunkers, the visibility of bunkers. The course is kind of unique too. There's, There's actually not any fairway bunkers on the course so wow that is interesting yeah it was designed by um al howard back in 1971 and um yeah so he didn't put any fairway bunkers in but obviously back then it was kind of completely different character and quite heavily treed so my argument to the club now is that they should consider fairway bunkers and the master plan will be um proposing that there be some fairway bunkers just to add a bit more strategy to some of the holes and they're going to look at putting in a new irrigation system too so there's the opportunity to put a lot more width into some of the fairways as well yep uh, possibly link some of the fairways as well sounds, so, uh, it's, it sounds very exciting for tasmania golf club yeah there's, well there's a lot happening down there and you know tasmania golf club like a lot of clubs post-pandemic are really busy and, and going well. So, uh, yeah, I'm presenting this um, draft master plan to the members in early September, and um, it'll be really exciting to, well, firstly, start the first project, which will be the 16th and uh, part of the 17th hole and the driving range work and the foot new first green. So that'll probably happen next year as well. So I might be a busy boy next year with you. <laughs> Tasmania underway. You'll uh, you'll have to print the three D print another version of yourself. Maybe <laughs> you'll be busy in the ACT yeah. and then down there. And uh, mate, it sounds exciting. That's that's another good part of. Uh, I think Tassie's going through this boom. When we talked about in the past, I've reported on a few other um, bits and pieces happening around. And we know Seven Miles carrying probably the flag the most at the moment, but it's got barn bugles and, and and the like as well. So, but uh, to to be to to have Tasmania Golf Club that is looking. Uh, at this type of work and, and a master plan improvements to the golf course. That's exciting and, and uh, mate, it sounds like it's a really good thing. Um, great stuff to hear. There is a fair bit happening down in Tassie. I've, I've got another job up in Launceston too, I, I should mention, at oh. Launceston Golf Club, which is a, another really nice course that's looking at doing some improvements. So, um, Mate, you are busy. Yeah, it's, it's pretty nice to be able to go down there and, Flying to Hobart and hop in the car and drive up to Launceston, which is a beautiful drive, um, and then back down to Hobart. So yeah, I've got two really exciting projects down there. There you go. What, we, you'll have to keep me posted so I can keep reporting to everyone on my walking the fairway segment, which is the the news segment of the podcast. So I let everyone know what's happening around the country in golf courses. So I mean, as they start to Yawanis and and Murrumbidgees and Tasmania and Launceston, you just keep me informed, mate. Just a text message and oh, some photos. Well done. And we'll keep getting it out there. Now, mate, I've got a couple more things I want to talk about. And um, one of them is actually, I know that you've, in the past, you've done some work in Perth. And this is a bit of a question about the Perth and WA region, I suppose. You've done work there in the past. I know that at the moment you're doing a bit of work at Quinana, which I think has recently just opened that work on the golf course there. Um, I'm I'm a bit curious because I've not been to Perth for golf. 
and I've not seen any golf courses. I've seen plenty of photos and, and read plenty of things and spoken to people about it. You know, Superintendent Matthew Soles over there at Royal Perth and, and the like. And, mate, I'm curious, you, because of your bit of experience over there and having done stuff, I, I'm wondering uh, your opinion, I suppose. Is, is, is Perth and that southwest corner of WA, is that a bit of an underrated sort of golf destination in your opinion? What are the, You've got, like I said, I keep going back to you've got experience there. What do the golf courses present with? Is it as good as the East Coast and, and some of the stuff? Because I know they've got sandy sites on some of the courses and the like. Do we underrate Perth? Do we not talk about it enough? What are your thoughts? Uh, look, we probably don't talk about it enough, but I'm not sure whether underrated is the correct word that I'd use. Okay. Um, there's some great land for golf in Perth. You know, all of Perth is basically sand. Um, up north especially, there's some, some virgin land that I've seen that would just, you could do the most spectacular golf courses along the coast there north of Perth uh, if you were able to. And But in terms of the existing courses, you know, obviously you've got Lake Carignac, which kind of stands out as as the number one Perth course. But other than that, you know, there's some good tracks, but given the quality of the land, um, you know, if you compare it to the Melbourne Sandbelt, for example, then you could probably pick up Lake Carignac and drop it in Melbourne and it wouldn't even be in the top 10 courses. and likewise, you know, you could take a course from Melbourne, an unheralded course such as like a Woodlands or a Spring Valley and drop that into Perth and it's probably the number one course. So, I, Interesting I that, sentiments. Yeah, underrated. Look, that's not to say that there's some really good, not some really good golf over there. I mean, Royal Fremantle's a nice track. WA's a nice, uh, WA Golf Club is a nice track. Mount Lawley. They're all strong courses, but they're they're probably just not in the league of um, well, certainly like carrying up or you know the stuff you'd see in Melbourne on similar terrain. I think. And then, go on. If you he- you head south of Perth, you know some of the kind of more touristy areas. I guess down south, Secret Harbour and the Cut is a spectacular course, but pretty tough. Um, then there's Kennedy Bay, where I, I think uh, Graham Marsh is. And some new work recently. That yeah, I they're in the middle of redoing all that. Yeah, and then there's some. Some I've worked at a couple of public courses over there at Karamar, which is up in the city of Wanneroo in the north suburbs. Um, Karamar and Marangaroo, and I did a little nine-hole course out on Rottnest Island a few years ago that I'm very very proud of as well. Wow. Um, okay. Yeah. So. But I'll I'll be uh, as you mentioned, Quinana Golf Club. We just opened the new sixth green, and I'm um, in the process of designing the new third green. And uh, so I'll be getting over there in the next few weeks to um, have a look at it and nice. uh, see the new sixth green, which unusually I'm yet to see because uh, it was built again during the the lockdown when we couldn't travel over to Perth. So I'm, no, I'm looking forward that... to seeing it. <laughs> it's. Getting over to WA is a little bit of a different scenario to the rest of Australia because they put up a giant wall. 
it's a long way to go. So <laughs> it is, it is. I, I like I said, I, I had um, Superintendent Matthew Sales from Royal Perth, uh, who was he's he's a Sydney boy, and uh, he got the gig over there at, at Royal Perth, and and he was telling us about how the difficult and extremely long and tough process was just to get over there, um, and he was moving there for work permanently. I so. heard about these challenges, actually. Yeah. Oh, mate, honestly. I, I Anyway, it, life's a lot easier, I think. Oh, well, I think it is to get over there and get back anyway, mate. So um, at least you'll be able to go and see it. But uh, no, the, the reason I asked that question is because we don't talk about that area. And, and maybe it's it's been – we don't talk about it because it's been missed by some opportunities. I'm not sure. Maybe there's not the – it is a long way from the East Coast. I don't know, but I don't know a lot about it. And I, I hear a lot of people, and you just said it then, that it's it's got great golf land – for golf courses, but it it, it, it hasn't converted, and I, I don't know. That's why I say underrated. Maybe maybe um, more conversations I'll have with people, and we'll learn more about WA. But I want to hear more about it and why we don't talk about it. Intrigues me as to why we talk about the sand belts of the world. You know, so yeah. Well, it, it, look, Perth's a beautiful spot to visit, so I'd encourage you to get over there and and study some of those courses for yourself. There you go. Very good. Very good. Now, one last question I've got for you, Ben, if you'll indulge me in this one. Your website has a quote on it, and I, and I love this quote when I saw it, and I'm going to read it to you and, and, and get your – I've got a question for you about it. And the quote is, behind every great golf course is a bold designer with a vision. Great quote. I love it. I don't know where you got it from. I don't know if it's yours. It could well be yours. Is it yours? I think it's my – my marketing manager's quote. Oh, okay. Well, look, I, I liked it. AA, my wife. <laughs> oh, that's even better. Well, I, I think it's fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> I, no, look, I liked it. And, and my oh, question, go on. She's kind of runs my website, so I, I'll credit her with that one. There you go. But my, my question is, because it intrigued me when I read that, and, 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 and I think a lot of people probably don't disagree with that as a statement, but my question is, are we seeing less bold designers or more bold designers in a modern world, do you think, uh, of golf course design and architecture? And, and maybe that's tied to the clientele, potentially, of, of the people that golf course architects and designers work for. What are your thoughts on that? Are we seeing more bold, bold moves and bold designs out there? Yeah, I guess it depends on your definition of what a bold design is. I well, mean, there you go. If we look back to kind of uh, my definition of a bold design might be some of the stuff that Pete Dye did, for example, back in the 80s and 90s. Um, some of the really, you know, heavily contoured greens that he did and the, the bunker shapes and the railroad tiers, et cetera, that he put in bunkers. I guess that's bold. And nowadays, I think the boldest thing that the golf course architects can do is kind of less rather yeah. than in fact, less is often more and you know designing golf courses that are um low key uh compared to for example some of the stuff that was done in the 90s where you know they were over bunkered and you know artificial mounding was put in etc so I, I think the boldest thing to do now as golf course architects sometimes is just to say less is more and to try and tone down things like the number of bunkers and think about the maintainability and sustainability of golf courses more. So, and some sometimes you know you present a plan to a club, for example, and you say, "Well, there's." Well, I'll give you an example. My new 
13th hole at Ioani is going to be bunkerless. My, my new seventh hole there is going to be bunkerless as well because I just don't feel they're needed. Interesting. Uh, they're water in place, but convincing sometimes, you know, you say, well, there's no bunkers around that green, and they kind of look at you like, what? You've got to have bunkers around a green. It's like, no, you don't. Um, so I think, yeah, the, the bold things that we can do now is to try and convince people that not to overdo it, to keep it simple. So um, the, the boldness is, is it could well be in the decisions, the decision process of whether to do something or not to do something at all and yeah, stick exactly. to your guns. Exactly. Interesting concept, mate. I, I um, yeah, that's a that's a different angle to looking at it because I know when I've had conversations and I, I can I need to speak of my experience and in, in talking with people who are golfers and and some people like my old uh, uh, Chris, my my former super, uh, my former assistant superintendent with me working at Katoomba, who wasn't a golfer but he was a great greenkeeper and we often had the discussion about bunkers and how much works in them should it go should it stay. But uh, you're, you're probably, when you have conversations with clubs that you mentioned, and I've got no doubt um, having a conversation with a golf club when you're doing a master plan to say that those golf holes, not just green sites, won't have a bunker on them. Mm. And, and to, to, I suppose, defend the reasoning behind doing that and putting that idea forward, most people are going to say, Every green green complex should have at least one bunker somewhere, shouldn't it? Yeah, and I think just also there's been a move away from you know trying to build sand belt bunkers on on a clay site, for example. And I'm probably guilty of it myself with that first project I mentioned in China, where you've got all these kind of capes and bays and convoluted shapes and uh, long walk-ins and tongues, etc. Moving away from that to a much simpler, um, more elegant word I mentioned earlier, uh, style of bunkering too, I think, is something that I'm certainly uh, looking at doing with my projects. Interesting stuff. Uh, I do love bunker talk. We could go down. We could go down that one very far. <laughs> it's uh, you. You talk about the intricacies and, and the bits and pieces because because clubs now are really putting dollar signs on bunkers, aren't they, when they look at them and when they yep. have to maintain them? You'd know more about this than I do, but every <laughs> superintendent I talk to just is like, tone down on the bunkers. It's like that's like 20% of the cost of, and time of maintaining a golf course is focused on bunkers. So. Oh, mate, it's madness. But but one of the things, I, I suppose it could be a bit of a funny um, turn at the moment is with these new bunker lining products, the way that water drains through the sand doesn't hit a base, it just keeps going. So the sand really doesn't move. I've seen photos from uh, Superintendent Mick Pascoe up at Noosa and all the rain that they had up there during the wet period, they've just had some some bunkers redone and it, it didn't flood. So that wasn't the issue, but just the amount of rain that just kept coming from the sky and the bunkers didn't move. So have we got to potentially to a point where we, I don't know, will, will it open up that imagination again because bunkers are being waterproofed, as it were, stormproofed, yeah. as it were, potentially? You know, do we see that? I know we're talking about doing less, but I wonder is the, the, the way that bunker construction has gone now with some of these incredible bunker lining products that the way that they drain, um, are we opening back up to the idea of, of a little bit more detail and interest? 
intricacy in the the maintenance that's involved in in bunkers again. I don't know. I, I, I'm well, just putting I, it out there. Possibly, but I I guess yeah. There's the maintainability on the one hand, but there's the cost of building these bunkers too. True. And I mean those products you mentioned. Yeah, you know, a lot of golf clubs will never be able to afford that that kind of stuff. Or if they do, can afford it. You know, it's very much a kind of a stage program of rebuilding. So look, I I hope we don't look. I I think golf course design is in a good space at the moment, a good place. Um, so I I hope we don't end up kind of going back to that kind of convoluted shapes that um, we used to see. I love um, the less is more line. It's it's in my head. It's bouncing around. <laughs> well, that's certainly my approach with you know what I've done with Yoani with the master plan and what I'm proposing to do at, at Tassie and and other projects that I'm working on, especially on clay sites. It's all very well if you if, if you're working on pure sand um, and you don't need these kinds of products, drainage products in your bunkers, then you can obviously be a bit more kind of elaborate with what you do. Um, with sandy waste areas and um, these shapes of bunkers that we see on the sand belt. But on clay sites, I just don't think you can do it anymore. And that's probably a limitation to, to just a site in general, right? You, you've got a does, does a site dictate to you the design elements and aspects and things that you can attack with and, and put in and the design flair that you can have? Is that somewhat, I suppose yeah. it would be, wouldn't it? Well, I mean, there's a reason why most new golf courses in Australia nowadays are built on sand. You know, the ones on King Island, um, the one you mentioned at Seven Mile Beach, uh, you know, new courses that are proposed on on Kangaroo Island, they're all on sand. And, you know, there's a reason for that because the cost of building on sand is probably a quarter of what it is to build on clay. So from a design point of view, you know, if you're building, designing greens on clay, you've got to think about cost far more than, some of these wonderful sights on sand. Very good. Very good insight, Ben. Well, look, Ben, on that note, I will thank you very kindly for your time and uh, an insight into your – what a great – I love the start. I'm still thinking about that conversation you had in the restaurant. <laughs> it's just a great way in. But, mate, you've, you've got some great experience under your belt uh, in the time that you spent over in Asia because some incredible sites by the sounds of it. I'm curious. when I, um, I'll write some of these names down. I'll get some of these things off you and have a look at them on Google Earth because that intrigues me to no end looking at that type of thing. Um, but, mate, look. And some incredible work happening in Australia. I, I, I very much have been blown away by the extent of the places that you've worked and, and your career to date. And it's very interesting to see that we've got you back here doing some of that work and using that experience on on, on bringing up some of our golf courses around Australia now and helping them move forward, which has got me really excited as well in the likes of Tasmania and Ioani and so on, mate. So, so, look, thank you very much for your time, Ben. It's been great having you on the first one of the new version of the design brief and I appreciate your time and insight made into everything involved and I look forward to one day having you again on soon. I'm very happy to do it anytime, Steve, and I've enjoyed this immensely, so thank you. Wonderful. Thank you, Ben. Well, there you have it, ladies and gentlemen. What did you think of that? Ben is a great bloke. Ben Davey from Contour Golf. 
I uh, we had a great time chatting away, as you could tell, uh, and and something different there. A few different questions at the end, a little bit more philosophical about Australian golf course design, and it's really really interesting to chat to an architect like Ben and get a bit of an insight, and certainly to showcase to you guys who Ben Davy is and who Contour Golf are, and a bit of background behind Ben and his career, how he got to where he is today, and. It's just a great insight. I certainly get a great lot of information out of chatting to people like Ben. And that's the idea of this new expanded version of the design brief where, like I said at the beginning, the idea is to talk to members of the Society of Australian Golf Course Architects and show you guys out there, people interested in in Australian golf course architecture, people interested in golf course architecture in general, golfers wanting to learn more, Greenkeepers out there listening that want to understand more and bits and pieces as well. That's the idea is to pass this information on and chat to new people and bring their information to you, bring their stories to you. And at the end of the day, it's to learn more. And and we love also, I certainly love also hearing their stories and bringing that to uh, to light as well, which is which is I think it's a it's a wonderful thing, and I think there's a lot of information there, and uh, and a lot of uh, background stuff in the careers of of people like Ben, which is what I want to bring to you more of, and that's the idea. So I'm going to uh, going to be talking to more members of the Society of Australian Golf Course Architects, and don't forget to check out their website if you want to know more. You can go to sagca.org.au. That's their website to go and find out some more information about other members um, that you'll 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 see on the website. Members of the society that we have in Australia that are doing work all over the world, all over the world. Some you've heard of, some you haven't heard of. Projects that you probably don't even know that they're working on uh, in Australia and around the world. And uh, and there's that's where you go for Australian architects to find out who they are and where they're working and what work they are doing and what work they've done. So um, it's, it's something that I'm working with them to bring to you through the podcast. And I'm very excited by it and very appreciative that they've opened up the society to uh, to the pod to my podcast to be able to talk to them and bring uh, bring their stories and bring their information out to you to to the audience out there listening who are interested in it. And don't forget, you can find more information about Ben Davy and Contour Golf at their website at Ben's website contourgolf.com.au. If you could, as always, I'd really want to know more from you. So please write a review, get in touch with me, comment, uh, leave me a comment, leave me a message, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, uh, LinkedIn, whatever works, guys. I'm on all the platforms there. Love hearing from you. And I really want to know what your thoughts are on it. That was the first one with Ben Davey. I've got plenty more lined up. There's, there's so many Australian architects that I want to chat with, and I want to be able to just keep bringing it out to you as time goes on and I get a chance to catch up with them. They're all very, very busy, which is which is so good to hear. And uh, and I've been chatting to uh, to quite a number of them in the short term and got some some great people lined up and there's plenty, plenty more to come. So um, great stuff that I'll be able to bring to you. And like I said, I appreciate the members of the Society of Australian Golf Course Architects to open themselves up to being interviewed and, and chatting with me on uh, all, all sorts of different topics, like I said, their careers and their work and, and the like as well, and philosophical questions just the same. 
And one final note, don't forget there is sponsorship available of certain segments of the podcast. So if you are interested, if you're a business out there in the golf industry, in any part of the greenkeeping industry, golf industry, architecture industry, whatever part of, of golf in the broader sense and you want to get your message out there, get it heard by the audience that I speak to, um, feel free to get in touch with me. You can email me at thegolfinggreenkeeper at gmail.com or get in touch with me with my socials like I mentioned before on Instagram, Facebook. Facebook, LinkedIn, or Twitter, feel free to do so, but they are still available. I've had quite a bit of interest, but I'm also letting you know that if you are interested, get in touch with me, and we can certainly sort that out with you to promote your brand and get your name out there in front of as many people as possible to just showcase what you are, who you are, and what you are offering, which is what I'm all about as being part of this. We can certainly get your message out there far and wide. That's the goal for you. Thank you for listening. As always, you hit them clean. We'll keep them green. Don't forget to leave a review, and I'll catch up with you very soon. Soon.